This morning we have a chance to open his word, to hear what God has to say, and to be instructed as a church so that we can learn to live in accordance with him. We're in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20 today. Please turn with me there. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Here, Paul just finished addressing in chapter 5 the acceptance of sexual immorality within the church, and he instructed them to place the man under uh, church discipline and to not associate with him. And then in chapter 6, we looked at last week um, the lack of love that the church had for one another, and that was demonstrated in them not taking or them taking one another to court rather than working out the personal grievances amongst themselves or even willing to suffer wrong and turn the other cheek when they were wronged in, in very trivial matters. So, needless to say, this, Corinthians, this Corinthian church is a mess. Um, but we know that we are not much better. We are sinners as well. We need to hear this message of grace each and every day. And we need instruction just as much today in the American church as they did 2,000-some years ago. In this passage, Paul continues um, to address the cultural norms that have made their way into the Corinthian church and to show how antithetical they are to the kingdom of God. And not only are they against what the kingdom of God is, but they're also destructive to the body of believers there as well, despite what the Greek philosophers may have been teaching them. So as you read this passage today, we'll see that the culture that the Corinthian church is living in is not much different than the one we are in today. So pray with me um, as, I, as, I, uh, as I read this passage. Father, would you illuminate our hearts and minds? Would your word impress upon our souls so that we wouldn't only cognitively understand it, but I pray that it would change the way we live? Holy Spirit, would you be with us this morning? Would you open our ears and hearts? to your divine truth. Would you cause us to see the gospel in a new way? Would you cause us to repent of any sin that we may have and see that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient to forgive us in his name? Amen. So let's read this passage. Starting with verse 12. Paul says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord, the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of prostitutes? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. My daughter, Gwendolyn, is seven months now. It's at a stage where she is not afraid to tell us when she has needs. A few months ago, um, when she would cry, Yasmin and I would run through our minds a list of things that might be wrong. Could she be hungry? Could she need to be changed? Could she be too hot? Could she be too cold? As parents or people who have known children, you know that you run through this very short list, and the younger they are, the more basic their needs are. But now that she is seven months old, her needs have become a bit more sophisticated. Now when she cries, it might be because she's lonely, or it's because she's bored, or she might just want mom. As parents, it's our job to meet this little girl's needs and love her by listening to her cries and determining what she needs most. Now, the tricky part is discerning between needs and wants. If we let every one of her wants become our master, then she becomes the little dictator of our house. 
and we become her servants waiting on her every beck and call. Because we realize as parents that our little seven-month-old daughter, A, does not know what is best for her, and B, does not yet know Jesus and therefore is not motivated by selfless love, we as parents love her most when we give her what she needs, but not always what she wants. We want her to learn at a young age that the world does not revolve around her. And just because she wants something doesn't mean that she can have it instantaneously. What is difficult in this parenting process is that it has taught me that I am more like Gwen than I would like to admit. I see behavior in her that is reflected in me. Even though I don't want to admit it, I am in a lot of ways like my seventh-month-old. Now, sure, my desires are a little more complex than a seven-month-old's, but if not kept in check, my actions, plans, and choices are often made by my wants and what I feel in that moment rather than being kept in check by what I know to be best for me. So a perfect example of this. How many of you are my snooze button hitting people? How many of you like to hit that snooze button? 5.30 hits and you feel like a freight train has hit you and your, your groggy mind quickly assesses your responsibilities and you're prompted to the, the, cause you to set your alarm in the first place and your body whispers to you just a few more minutes. It couldn't hurt. It, it might not. But then one day leads to another, and you're missing appointments. As Christians, rather than spending time in, in, in the morning with the Lord in prayer and in the Word, you skip it. So suddenly, these wants that you had start to turn into your what you think to be needs. And you are dictated and you're following the desires that come from your body rather than following some instruction set that's outside of you, namely the Word of God. So some of you are snooze button people. If you know me well, my weakness is Taco Bell. Yasmin and I have been trying to eat healthier lately, holding each other accountable, but we drove to Visalia about a month ago, and at 11.30 p.m. on the way down, my, my stomach had already digested my dinner, and I was hungry again. So, how convenient. There's a Taco Bell halfway, an hour and a half in, in Los Banos. And so I pull over, and I grab my, my five-layer burrito, and I'm eating it, and it tastes so good, but with every bite, there's that little reminder that I don't have very good self-control. Um, now, I was, my stomach is what drove my decision-making, not my mind, not my will, not what would be most loving for myself and what would be best to keep Yasmin accountable to her healthy diet, but it was my stomach that drove me to make this decision. Now, we may laugh at these examples, but when you take this mindset of allowing your flesh or your body to just simply dictate and motivate your actions, you get, a cult- you get the culture that we see we- that we live in today. The famous singer-songwriter Sheryl Crow captured this cultural sentiment in a song titled, If It Makes You Happy. The chorus goes, If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. If it makes you happy, why are you so sad? I did the radio edited version. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. That song, I hear it on the radio from time to time, and it does reflect my generation, our culture. Not to mention, there's a song by Pharrell out called Happy. He says that happiness is the truth. Essentially meaning that happiness is what should dictate our actions. Happiness is what we should follow. And as long as it makes you happy, go for it. What we see today is that if happiness is our guide, that is a very slippery slope. Now, on the outset, you say, well, who doesn't want to be happy? How can this be so harmful? But as we see here in this passage today in 1 Corinthians, and from human experience, that if we simply let our decisions follow the cravings of our body, then it can end up in our ultimate demise. Sheryl Crow even gets this by saying, if you are happy, then why are you so sad? Kind of realizing that if you just keep following what your body wants you to, then it won't fulfill you. You'll, you'll end up sad and feeling empty. 
I want to make a proposition to us this morning. As Christians coming here to hear the word of God this morning, coming to worship God in his house, can we, should we be thinking about this differently? Should we be thinking about the motivations and how we make our decisions, not merely based on the body, but something else? What if the decisions we make in our purpose in life is more than simply just being happy and feeling good? What if life was more than toiling to have as much good food and good sex as possible before we come, become worm food? What if there is someone who is looking out for our ultimate good, who gave us instructions that may not make us feel the best in that moment? What if the one who created us and life itself actually knew what was best for us in the long run, and like a good parent, has given us radically different directions than what our flesh often follows. Would you listen to that voice? Would you heed those instructions? Or would you continue to go on your cavalier path? What Paul is trying to get the church in Corinth and at Camden Avenue this morning to see is that there is a creator who has rights over you and who loves you so much that he laid his life down for you. And after your ultimate, and and he is after your ultimate joy, by calling you to follow the purpose to which he gave you your body in the first place. We see that in verse twenty. That purpose is to glorify God. I believe that the apostle states his thesis here in verse twenty. He says, "Because you Christian were bought with a price, glorify God in your body." This morning, we will answer the question of how and why we are to glorify God in our bodies as we unpack these nine verses here in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20. We will unpack how we are to glorify God in our body and why we are to. So first, we will see that since you have been bought with a price, you should not be enslaved to anything. You shouldn't be enslaved to anything. Second, because you were bought with a price... You must flee sexual immorality. And last, because you were bought with a price, you must see yourself as not your own, but you must see yourself as his. So let's look at these three points. First, because you were bought with a price, you shouldn't be enslaved to anything. Although the church in Corinth had heard the news, good news of the gospel, and many of them were living transformed lives, they were still carrying a lot of cultural baggage around, from the Greek and Roman philosophers that were prevalent in their day. In order to instruct the church from becoming enslaved to their desires, he admonishes them, don't abuse your Christian freedom. Also, don't compartmentalize the physical from the spiritual realm. So he's telling them two important things here in the, in the start of these verses. He's saying, yes, you might have, some li- you might have liberty as a Christian, but... Don't abuse it. Also, he's saying, don't follow the, the Greek philosophy that God doesn't care about your body. He only cares about the spirit. So first, what is this Christian freedom, and how can we abuse it? In these opening sections, um, Paul confronts the Corinthians' false ideology of freedom by quoting a popular motto of the day and adding his own end to that motto. Here is, he says this in verses 12 and 13. Now, you guys may know some, some Christians who like to use this as their life verse. You might say, you know, brother, I think you know, going to that, that movie is sinful, or um, I think that your actions aren't upright. And they'll say, all things are lawful for me. And that will be what they tattoo on their arm. That will be what they hang above um, their mirror in the morning. Their life will be characterized as, I'm a Christian. All things are lawful for me. And they will live in such a way that is licentious, that does not honor God, and doesn't represent Christ well at all. Now, we must understand that that is not what Paul was teaching to them. Paul was quoting a common motto of the day, or a saying that the Corinthians had, that was a mix of half-biblical truth and half-false philosophy. So when Paul here in verse 12 says, all things are lawful for me, he ends it, by adding his own adage to it, he says, but not all things are helpful. 
They're like, all things are lawful for me. We can do whatever we want. But he says, slow down a minute. You should not be enslaved by anything. So he was cleverly taking their half-truth and adding the right ending to it to make it a biblical truth. That's as if I were to take a popular phrase like when in Rome that you know we use today. And just, and it's a phrase that people use to justify their sinful actions. They show up at a bar, and they say, when in Rome, and they use that as to justify getting drunk. They say, well, I'm in the bar, so I'll do as the Romans do. I'll do as everyone else is doing. But Paul, so Paul is taking a popular saying like that and, and adding to it. So if I were to say, when in Rome, not do as the Romans do, but when in Rome, do as the Christians do. See, see what Paul's doing here? He's adding a different ending to it by saying but not all things are helpful. Okay, so maybe those of you who, um, who are familiar with that saying, great, but if maybe if you're a lot younger than me, you hear another saying. What if I were to say, hashtag YOLO, you only live once. That is another saying used to excuse whatever behavior you want. People often say YOLO as the, the more... Uh, crazy version of carpe diem. They, they might say YOLO and then do some drugs or YOLO and then go bungee jumping. I'm only going to live once, so why not experience everything? That's what it implies. But Paul is taking their understanding of the saying and saying, okay, YOLO, so honor Christ with the time you have left. You only live once, so he adds a different ending to it. So, so that's what Paul's doing here. He's not saying that, oh, Christians, all things are lawful, you can just throw away the Old Testament, throw away the Ten Commandments, live and do whatever you want. No, he's saying that you still have a Lord you are to answer to, and that Lord is Jesus. You may see how this motto may have been cleverly used as an excuse for sin in that church, but we have to not be so quick to excuse ourselves either. I know that I have been guilty in the past of thinking that, oh, well, I have Christian liberty. Christ has died for me. I'm forgiven. I'm set for heaven. Therefore, you know, God may not be as worried about this decision I make or that decision. I, I have my ticket. I'm, I'm punched into heaven. Therefore, you know, I can just, I can, God doesn't care that much if I uphold his word to the degree that he wants me to. So before we quickly condemn the Corinthians, we have to first examine our own lives and what ways do we justify our truth justify ourselves and our actions by twisting scripture. If they truly understood what Paul was teaching here, they would have understood that all things were lawful for them, not in the sense that it gave them license to do everything, but in the sense that the law could no longer make them right with God. The law, the place for the law, wasn't so that it could justify the believer. Oh, if I uphold this list of rules, that's going to make me right in God's sight. No, that's, that's not, or that is what it means here to say that not all things are lawful. It was Christ who perfectly fulfilled the law and died on the cross so they could be saved. So it's faith that they are justified, not holding the law. So the freedom, freedom that they have and that the freedom that we have from the law does not mean that we should not obey the law. It means that we are free from the impossible task of trying to earn God's favor on our own by submitting ourselves to, that, to those commands. Paul taught about this freedom, and he would have certainly qualified it as he does in Galatians 5 by saying, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So in a sense... Christians are free not to become their own masters, but their freedom is a transfer of slavery to sin, a slavery to unrighteousness, to a slavery to righteousness, a slavery of Christ, that desires to not be your own master and just gratify your own pleasures, but it's a desire to honor Christ with your actions and to love one another, not to give provision to the flesh, but to use your freedom in order to serve. Therefore, the paradox of the Christian life is that you are really most free when you are a servant to God. You are really most free when you are serving others. Not when you use your pseudo-freedom 
to enslave yourself to pleasures like food or sex, as many of the Corinthians were doing in that church. So now that we understand how Paul is refuting their flawed concept of all things are lawful for me, he goes on in verse 13 to say that food is meant... He quotes another popular saying that they said. They would say, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So their logic, again, was taking a half-biblical truth and contaminating it with modern philosophy. We understand that God created the body to have pleasure for a good reason, so that we could glorify him, so that we could thank him for the good food that we eat and worship the giver, not the gift. There was a competing philosophy entering the church from Plato that said, because your senses can't be indulged when you're dead, you should indulge them as much as possible here, presupposing that there is no life after death. So they were taking what they had heard from Paul and what they had heard from Plato, and they were twisting it together to come up with this, this Frankenstein, this beast that was not real truth. Paul refutes this at the end of verse 13 by saying, and God will destroy both the one and the other. He'll destroy both food and the stomach. And in verse 14, he continues to refute this false philosophy by saying that this life isn't all there is. There will be a resurrection. So, You can't follow Plato and say that your senses can't be indulged anymore after death. If we are truly to be Christians set for heaven, we know that the most pleasure, the most satisfaction, the most joy will be in heaven. Therefore, that should motivate us to worship and honor God and deny our fleshly desires here on earth because we are looking for the greater good rather than the other way around. We cannot simply indulge our senses any way we want and then blame God for creating those senses in the first place. That's another thing they were arguing here by saying food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. They were thinking very just naturally. We are a a biological collection of cells, and if God has given us a stomach, then we might as well indulge in food. That's what it was made for, right? You see that underneath that is the wrong starting place. It's the starting place of self. Really, what they're, what they're saying is, how can I bring myself the most pleasure with what I eat? Rather than asking the question that Paul is pointing them to, that says, how can I glorify God most through what I eat? See the different end there? In both cases, there's pleasure being God. It's not wrong to enjoy food. But one starts with, I am trying to simply bring myself pleasure where the other one says, you need to follow God's law and honor him with what you eat and enjoy that pleasure and then thank the giver, not just the gift. As Christians, we similarly can compartmentalize our lives into thinking that God is only concerned about the spiritual things and not so concerned about what we call physical. What do I mean? Sometimes, as Christians, we fall into the trap of saying, oh, well, God cares about things like Bible study and prayer, but he's not so concerned about what I do on a Friday evening. Or, God, he sees me going to church. He sees my attendance. That's a spiritual thing in my mind. But... But the type of food and the type of beverages that I'm consuming, uh, he's not so concerned with. He understands. That's not spiritual. That's physical. I am in charge over that. You see, you see the misunderstanding there. We, when we fail to recognize that God is Lord over both spirit and flesh, and not just Lord over the spiritual, is what the Corinthian church thought. When we say, God, I am really Lord of my own life, but you can take this small portion... Just don't infringe on my rights. How ridiculous does that sound? That's as if I were to walk up to my employer and say, you need to pay me what I deserve, pay me my wages, but, you know, I want to work and do what I want to. I don't want to spend time doing what you want to. I am lord over my work. I will, you know, do my taxes. I will do some, maybe some online shopping during the day. 
um, this is my time, but you, boss, you don't have rights really over what, how I spend my time. It's just flawed logic and ridiculous. If we were to compartmentalize the physical from the spiritual or not recognize that Christ is Lord over all. This logic of not being concerned with, of only being concerned with spiritual may work in our mind to justify some sinful actions, but it will not hold up on the day of the Lord. It will not hold up in court on that last day when we die and have to stand and give an account for our lives. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. That's important there, what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. As Christians, if we keep our focus on glorifying God in every sphere of life and using our freedom not as a chance to gratify ourselves, but as a chance to not judge others, um, a a freedom to see that Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly for us and we don't have to submit ourselves to it in order to justify ourselves with God— if we do these things, then we, will, then we will be able to keep ourselves from being enslaved to something or someone else other than God. A perfect illustration of this is in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. In Ecclesiastes 2, the preacher here is in search for pleasure. But it turns out that in his desire to become Lord over everything, he actually becomes enslaved to everything that he was seeking out. He says in chapter 2, I tried wine. I built great houses. I had the best gardens with the best pools. I ate the best food. I even had servants that met my every need. I had silver, gold. And I even hired the best musicians to entertain me that were out there. But listen to his conclusion. After he said, I tried every pleasure in life. Listen to what he concluded. Then I considered all, my ha- all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He realized that whoever dies with the most toys does not win, necessarily. He realized that those inanimate things that he collected for himself to bring himself pleasure, he, in the process, became a slave to them. He had to maintain those gardens. He had to hire those singers. He looked for his identity, his purpose, his pleasure, his satisfaction, and all of that. He found himself to be utterly empty. Now, we are living in the Silicon Valley. We are, everyone is running a very high, fast-paced life. And you get people like this who are much like this preacher in Ecclesiastes who are trying to acquire for, for, for them everything they can to protect themselves, to bring themselves pleasure, to bring themselves joy. But what do you see when you look out amongst, amongst a lot of the people? You see spiritual slavery. You see people who are tied to their house, who are anxious and worried about their bank account, who commit suicide when the stock falls and they lose everything who resort to things like prostitution because they are not willing to follow what God's desire is in in true marriage. You see utter spiritual slavery. A few questions. So, But it's not only outside these walls. We have to realize that that is coming to the church as well. Maybe not to, of course, as believers here, not to the same degree, but we are, whether we know it or not, subtly affected by our culture. And we, if we do not keep a check on our actions, are, are directed by our desires of the flesh rather than the instructions that God has given us in his word. A few questions that we can ask ourselves to understand maybe the degree that we are actually glorifying God in our body. I have a few questions for us. One, um, Although it's not wrong to have ambitions and to to want to enjoy things in life, how much time do you spend truly reflecting upon your motives? Do you ever ask, stop and think, why am I eating this food right now? Why am I going to go spend some time with this person? 
do you reflect on your motives? Or are you simply following the desires of your body? Another question, do you find yourself indulging in things that wouldn't fly in church? Do you find your private life to be a lot different than your public life? Do you find yourself considering how I can use my Christian freedom to love those around me? Or are there habits that you may have that may not be explicitly prohibited in Scripture, but you're using your Christian freedom to, to gratify yourself rather than to love those around you? Do you find yourself considering how you can use your Christian freedom to love those around you? Just as we must be cognizant of how we use our bodies not to become enslaved to good things by giving them inordinate places in our lives, we must never think that we have also reached a place where we don't have to guard ourselves against things that aren't good but explicitly bad, like sexual immorality. Even King David, described as a man who is after God's own heart, fell into the sin of sexual immorality when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. This particular sin is one that Paul is addressing head-on within the church in the promiscuous city of Corinth. And like I said before, it is even more important that we, that the church today is addressed with this topic as well. So the second point. Although many in the world today find it easy to justify sexually immoral thoughts and actions, Paul argues that because Christians have been bought with a price, we are to flee sexual immorality. Paul gives this imperative in verse 18. If we are to protect ourselves and others against this powerfully alluring sin, then we must have a rock-solid conviction on this issue because our theology dictates our behavior. If we don't believe what is right about the purpose of sex and about how we can flee sexual immorality, then when faced with that temptation, we're goners. If we don't have that already solid in our mind, then Satan will take maybe the half-truth we have there and he'll find a back door to sneak in, and he'll, he'll trap us if we don't have it already worked out in our mind of, of what God expects of us and how we are to flee sexual immorality. Now, if this Corinthian church is following the same logic they did with food and thinking that, oh, well, God created my body for pleasure, therefore I shouldn't deprive myself of any of it, if they, if they play that out, then you can imagine that that's only amplified when it came to their sexual appetite. They lived in a culture that glorified promiscuous sex. And it was so common that that practice became something called Corinthianizing. John MacArthur's commentary points out that many of the believers in this church had formerly been involved in immorality, and it was hard for them to break from their old ways and easy for them to fall back into them just as it was hard for them to give up their love of wisdom, their worldliness, their pride, their divisive spirit, it was also hard for a lot of these new Christians to give up their old way of life. The term here used for in Greek for sexual immorality is porneia, which essentially is any promiscuity outside of a monogamous heterosexual marriage. Sometimes porneia can mean to sell off, which makes sense here in the context of prostitution, but porneia doesn't always have to mean a, a transaction is being taken place. It is any sexual immorality. Now, although Paul is dealing also here in this passage directly with those who were tempted to visit prostitutes, we read earlier in Matthew 5, Jesus says that if you've ever looked at a woman with lust. It's as if you've committed adultery in your heart, so God cares far, not, not just about the outward actions, but about the heart intent as well. Therefore, we must see that um, God cares about our heart, and these arguments, although they apply specifically to the outward act, can also be applied to the inward heart as well. So Paul, Paul, Paul moves forward 
showing them, building up arguments that show how unthinkable and how ridiculous it is for a Christian to consider themselves to even entertain the idea of sexual immorality, given that they are members of Christ. He says in verse 13 that the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but the Lord and the Lord for the body. So after establishing the purpose of the body, that, that they are to use their body for the Lord, he also says the Lord is for the body as well. Now what does that mean? It means that the Lord acts, he plans, he provides, he sustains our physical bodies. And not only that in this world, but he also plans to resurrect our bodies one day. So God cares very much about what we do in these physical bodies. If God cares so much for the body, it's only logical that he cares about how we use it as well. Isn't that not true of anything that we take care of? Wouldn't you care if someone used your computer and downloaded a bunch of viruses on it, or borrowed your new car and went and got fast food, leaving a smell in it, right? If you care about something, it's only logical that you, you care about how it's used as well. How much more do you think God cares about how we use this one irreplaceable body that he plans to glorify one day? Verses 15, 16, and 17 move us to an even stronger motive to flee sexual immorality. He says, for the sake of Christ. Not just that he cares for our body, but he cares for Christ, and that we should care for Christ's honor as well. I say that this motive should be stronger because our love for Christ and his honor should far exceed our love for ourselves. When we read, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul tells us in verses 15 and 17 that the body and our spirit are both joined to the Lord and are therefore members of Christ. Many of the commentators call this a mystical union, which might be hard for some of, some of us to understand. But what, what, what does it mean for us to be members of Christ? Well, we see that played out and described in, in more detail in chapter 12. We see that members of the body are described as physical body parts, as ears, as hands, as feet, as eyes that we must see ourselves as intrinsically part of who Christ is. We must understand that each of us, even though we think we may not play in a significant role, all play an extremely, extremely important role in the body of Christ. In chapter 12, verse 22, it says, even the weaker, even those who seem weaker are actually indispensable. Now, if it's true that we are all essential parts of the body of Christ, pairing that with the truth that our love for Christ should far supersede that love that we have for any one of our family members or any one of our friends, then taking these two truths together should wholeheartedly have the power to stop us, even to stop even the strongest temptation from pulling us into the trap of sexual immorality. Now, the best humanly example I can think of here about when I, when I think of those who I love and not wanting to expose them to anything that's vile, the best human example I can think of that would stir up those emotions in me that would cause me to think this sexual immorality is ridiculous is this. What if I were walking in public one night, down, down some street, with my wife and daughter. Two girls who I would lay my life down for. And what if I looked ahead and I saw a gang? They were a gang that was drinking, cursing. They had knives. And this is, this is dark in, in this street. 
And what if when I saw them, I pushed my wife and daughter ahead of me so that I could get a running start the other way? This scenario that I just described is is intentionally absurd. But this absurdity happens every time a Christian enters into sexual immorality. He or she is taking what is most precious to him or her, in my hypothetical story, my wife and daughter, and it is exposing it, it is pushing it towards that which is most vile, revolting, and treacherous and dangerous for his or her own benefit. It's taking what is most precious to you, and it's saying, I am more important. I will expose you to this. I will put you in harm's way so that I can think about myself. Now you can understand why Paul exclaims, Never, after posing that ridiculous question, shall I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? I want you to think about that next time you are tempted to lust. Are you really willing to defile that which is most precious to you in order to get some fleeting, selfish pleasure. Now, this analogy doesn't quite capture the permanence and power of what happens when a person is joined to a prostitute. In verse 16, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, which is the first Christian marriage in Scripture. And he does this to prove the seriousness of what it means to have sex with a prostitute, He says that the two shall become one flesh. This is a good reminder of the sacred purpose of sex and how it has the power to consummate a marriage. Being one of the most intimate and powerful and vulnerable things that we can do in our body, Paul reminds us that going to visit a prostitute is much more than scratching some itch or fulfilling some physical urge, but It is a sacred act that, when perverted, has serious and weighty consequences. So, although the Corinthians thought that, no, we are just physical beings, and we're just going to follow the desires of our body, Paul is saying, no, you must consider the purpose of sex and the the weightiness of, of why God created sex in the first place, to unite a man and woman and to make them one. Much more could be said here about what it means to know one another and the beautiful oneness that's in within marriage. But that is for another sermon. What what Paul is not implying here is that if the members of Christ are joined with a prostitute, he's not implying that Christ is in some way guilty of then committing sexual immorality. He's not implying that. He's also not implying that the one who went to the prostitute, is now in a marriage covenant with that prostitute. He's not implying that either. The point he's making in the context of this passage is that how ridiculous is even the the thought or the notion of taking what is most holy, most precious, namely Christ, and making it one with a harlot. It should be utterly unconceivable to the Christian ear. Now, based on this line of argumentation, Paul states that it's it's the only feasible response is to do what Joseph did when he was approached by Potiphar's wife, that is, to flee sexual immorality. The only logical conclusion when when the Christian is faced with this absurd question of, shall I join the members of Christ with a prostitute, the only choice is to flee. The second half of verse 18 says that every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What does this mean? Commentators are all over the place on, on what this exactly means. But I think that what Paul is saying here is that sexual immorality, unlike other sins, is particularly destructive and damaging to the self. One commentator puts it this way, Perhaps no single sin has done so much to produce the most painful and dreadful diseases to weaken the constitution and to shorten life as this one. Other vices, such as gluttony and drunkenness, do this also, and all sin has some degree of destroying the body. But it is 
true of this sin in an imminent degree. Another commentator puts it this way, when one has sex with a prostitute, what God intended to be a means of sharing one's life with another is dehumanized into a momentary coupling for the sole purpose of sexual release. It leaves a legacy of, of alienation and guilt rather than loving intimacy and mutual commitment. We need to have these truths burned onto our minds and hearts so that when temptation comes strolling by, our immediate reflex is to flee. We are swimming against a cultural tide that is worse than the ones that the Corinthians were living in. The affordability, accessibility, and anonymity of internet pornography, for example, has allowed sexual immorality to spread wider and deeper than it ever has before. The growth of, the pornogra- of pornography has skyrocketed so that it is now a multi-billion dollar industry. Polls say that some 70% of 18 to 24-year-old men now visit a pornographic website in a given month. 70%. Men in their 20s and 30s fare a little better, with two out of every three admitting the same. Pornography has even made major inroads in the lives of women more and more. Children are being introduced to it at even at ever younger ages and are often addicted to it before they are even capable of understanding sexuality. We have seen these realities make their way into churches to the point where we're not surprised when we hear that another pastor has fallen. These Realities of the condition our world is in have made their way into the church, where accountability groups amongst guys focus the majority of their time on keeping each other accountable to this one particular sexual sin. As Christians, we cannot afford to dabble in this area, or it will mean certain death to ourselves and death to the growth of Christ's church in the world. In addition, we cannot afford to stand on the sidelines and watch this horrific sin of sexual immorality ravage the church. We must not only teach against it, but love one another enough to have these dialogues. To not see ourselves as anonymous in the church, but to be members of one another. To be so integrated in the lives of brothers and sisters where where that trust is there. We are able to say, brother, I'm struggling with this issue. Help me out, please. Can you keep me accountable? Because it is, this is one of those sins that it hides. And because it is so private, it's one that is so destructive as well. And it needs to be brought into the light. As a father, I fear the state of the church my daughter will grow up in. And I only, I only pray that God will protect her from the effects of this wicked sin. If you struggle with this sin, and you know that it is killing you, consider 1 John 3.6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. So 1 John, John is calling into question, if you make a practice of sinning, if it's something that you didn't just fall into, but you're diving into, this is a practice, this is repetitive, this is your lifestyle, then it may mean that you never knew him at all. He's, put it, he's calling us to question, do you love this sin enough to go to hell for it? Let's be honest. For if you show that your allegiance is to your pleasures, then it reveals that your allegiance is not to Christ. The few cannot, for the two cannot coincide. You might be asking, what hope is there for us? Does Paul simply rail against this evil practice and wish the church good luck as your, as your you know, ship sinks? Is that all Paul does here? Does he just say, oh, this is bad, 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 you are bad? No, he does not stop there. If you're still with me at this point, it's a good thing because Paul closes with the most powerful argument against porneia. 
and more importantly, the power we have to be forgiven and cleansed of it. In verses 19 and 20, he says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Unlike the pagan temples that the Corinthians would visit to to engage in this practice, our bodies are temples of the third person of the holy triune God. This should deter the Christian from coming close with this sin and not wanting to grieve the Holy Spirit, but it should also empower the Christian to realize that we have an infinite source of power living inside of us. In speaking with several guys who struggled with this throughout college, a recurring theme was that these guys were so discouraged by this sin that they felt like they could never overcome it. In ministering to them, it was helpful to remind them that it wasn't going to be an iron will or a super strong internet filter that was going to cure them of this disease but it was a daily communion in reliance upon the Holy Spirit, doing the basic disciplines of prayer and reading Scripture, that their souls may be satisfied in Christ, and they may draw upon that power that is within within them, not needing to look for pleasure or comfort somewhere else. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that no temptation has overtaken you that is common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So there is no excuse. We can't say, oh, well, I have the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit isn't powerful enough to help me. That cannot be the conclusion based on this verse. God says there's always an escape route. There's always a way out of this sin. So you might be asking, what does this escape route look like? Should I be looking for a vision? Should I be listening for an audible voice? No, you don't have to. Whether we are tempted to commit this particular sin or any other sin, this escape route that we should be looking for and our primary weapon against it is the gospel. That is our escape route. It is the glorious good news of the gospel. It is the gospel that is able to set us free and the gospel that is able to remind us that we are rightfully his. Because in the gospel we hear the good news that the price that, that, the price that was paid in order to cancel our guilt, wipe away our shame, And make us right with God was the blood of Christ. We hear of this great price that was paid. And only that is able to free us from this destructive sin. Because you were bought with a price, you you must see yourself as his. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. How many of you are familiar with the book of Hosea? How many of you have heard about it before? Minor prophet. So... Hosea was a minor prophet who God called to marry an adulterous woman named Gomer. This real marriage symbolized God's covenant with his people. Although Gomer was was unfaithful to her husband and pursued other lovers, God still said that I will allure her. I will speak tenderly to her and I will betroth her to me. I will betroth her to me in justice and righteousness and steadfast love and mercy. And in chapter 3 of this short minor prophet, Hosea literally goes to purchase his wife back from another man for 15 shekels of silver and some barley. So Hosea is instructed to go and purchase this wife back who had ran off after other men. The good news is that rather than leaving us to live with the consequences of our sin, and having to face God's righteous punishment, Christ, being the greater Hosea, came into the world and lived a life free from sexual immorality and sin, a life that was only ever pure and motivated by the right motives, so that he could buy back his bride, 
so that he could buy back his church. So that you and I, although we are stained with sin, whether it be that particular one of sexual immorality or whether it be any other sin, Christ came so that he could buy us back, so that he could pay a ransom price, not merely 15 shekels of silver, but the price of his own lifeblood. So looking upon the sinful and adulterous people, Jesus knew that his church would still sin time and time again, and yet he still patiently and silently, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, went to the cross and took the punishment that you and I deserved for our sin and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. God, pour your wrath on me instead of them so that they can be forgiven. Washed and made into new creatures whom God would look on and consider virgins, consider to be pure, blameless, and white as snow. That is the good news of the gospel. And then when Jesus rose again from the grave, he demonstrated that God accepted his sacrifice. And for, and for, for all those for whom he died, he would raise them from, from spiritual death as well. The good news is that Paul here in this letter has not given us this, these warnings and said, well, you're out of luck. Your ship is sinking Sexual immorality is wicked and bad, and you are guilty of it. And and he doesn't just stop there. He gives us the power to overcome it. He says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Only Christ's death and resurrection, only the power of God itself, is able to enable us to break from this sin. He calls each one of us to repent of our sin this morning and trust in his sacrifice in order to receive a new life. Don't just take it from Paul. Also take it from me, who myself struggled with the sin of sexual immorality throughout my adolescence, who has been in a place of utter discouragement, and who also knows that although my sins have stained me as red as scarlet, Christ's blood and his sacrifice is able to wash me white as snow. And he has. So we have many saints. We have the church. And I can tell you from experience that it is his blood and his work on the cross that is able to free a sinner and a wretch such as I from the sin of sexual immorality and, and sin in general. Is able to empower us to break habits and to, leave, to live lives of true freedom in purity as we were called to live. Not simply following our body's impulses like like babies do or like people do when they pull over to the side of the road sometimes at 11.30. No, but we are called to follow Scripture. God said that I've given you my word. My word is life. He calls us to feast on this bread of life every single day so that we can be nourished by him, satisfied in him, so that we don't have to go seeking our satisfaction in a prostitute, in a computer screen, or in food. If this morning you do trust in him, and you know that you have been bought with a price, consider the costliness of every drop of blood that was spilled on your behalf, and ask God to make these truths even more vivid in your mind, that you may persevere to the end and, and overcome this world. If you are in him this morning and you know that you have been bought with a price, take great encouragement that he can sustain you and keep you, and his Holy, Spirit, you, his Holy Spirit is a temple within you, and you have the power to overcome and flee from this sin. If you're here this morning and you have not yet trusted in the Savior, it's not too late you can find true freedom in him. Not to live life of slavery to the desires of the body, but to see that you were made to worship him both now and for all eternity. Let's pray.
great God, we would be fools if we did not admit and realize that we are affected deeply by our sin. God, we know that sexual sin in particular is against the body and that it can do great damage. God, I pray that that sin would not remain in the darkness in your church, in this church or in the church around the world. God, but I pray that you would bring those sins to light, that they may be confessed and repented of, and that sinners may find true healing, true forgiveness, and true cleansing to live lives of purity that you have called them to. Thank you that although you could have justly judged us and said, how dare you join my son to a to a prostitute. How dare you sin against me? Thank you that you did not leave us to live out our consequences, but that you sent your only son into the world to buy us back, to tell us that we have been bought with a price. God, I ask that our motivation would be to glorify you in in these bodies that we have. Lord, help us see that one day they will be resurrected. They will be imperishable either to live for all eternity with you or to live eternally in hell where the, where the worm will, will continue to be hungry and the fire will never go out. God, I pray that you take those eternal truths and you impress them upon this moment. I pray that they would help us to not follow our, our, just our bodily desires, but to listen to what your word has to say and to follow you each and every day of our lives. Empower us to do so. I pray for this church and the church around the world that you would free us from this debilitating sin of sexual immorality and that you would help us to use our bodies to bring you most glory. In Christ's name, amen.